Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversational Witchcraft with me, Dawn the Kitchen Witch. I am so excited today. Like, I can't even, I can't even tell you how excited I am. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure that you like, subscribe, and all that stuff so that you know when we're doing great interviews like this one, because this is going to be so much fun. Today we have Linda Radish. She has been a contributing crafts, recipes, and I can't even pronounce the word, enthobiotanical lore. You're going to have to correct me on that one, Linda. Um, at Llewellyn's Herbal <laughs> Almanac since 2012. She's an author of The Old Magic of Christmas and the Lore of Old Elfland. Outside the kitchen, she has special interests in paper crafts, minority languages, and exploring the suburban jungle. Linda, welcome. Can you? What was that word I couldn't pronounce? <laughs> Ethnobotanical. And I'm not like, I'm not a card carrying ethnobotanist. I don't have a degree. Um, I think I first came across the word in there was um, JL Hudson's seed catalog, JL Hudson's seedsman catalog. And that's where I first came across the word ethnobotany. He used to get a, um, a Xerox copied catalog in the mail mm. of seeds. Mm -hmm. And he would have like little stories in it. And there was like, like morning glory seeds. And like, these morning glory seeds are descended from seeds that were found in, uh, encased in an adobe brick from a ruin from an 18th century adobe house in New Mexico. Wow. Stuff like that. Yeah. He wow. had like, it was all in there. It was like, I would read the catalog to read the catalog. So you were just getting all kinds of information from that. And information. That's how I learned like the word ethnobotany. I thought, well, like if I ever actually did go back to college, I'd like to study ethnobotany, which I didn't, but I get to write about it for Llewellyn. That's so cool. And again, I don't think people like, I mean, everything is, is geographic and everything is cultural. Like if you, I always say, if you want to know what people like learn what they eat, learn their food, you know, um, mm -hmm. which is a direct correlation to what's coming out of the ground in that area, right? What are, what are edible yeah. plants? What are edible herbs in that area? So fascinating. Cause you do write a lot about that sort of thing, right? Um, can you give us an I example do, yeah. of like, what is um, something about ethnobotany that really fascinated you in the first place to make that part of one of the things that you work with? Well, let's see. For, what first comes to mind is is more recently, my cousin and his family were visiting from Germany, and we were uh, walking down the street, and it was um, when was that? It must have been springtime, and we passed some marsh marigolds, hmm. which I'm very used to seeing. Um, they have they're very low lying. They grow in wetlands. They have a beautiful yellow, dark yellow flower, and my my cousin in law told me what it was called in German. She knew all about it. And she said, sailors used to eat it when they went to sea. They took it with them when they went to sea because it was rich in vitamin C. I'm like, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. And actually, wow. I had thought it was a native plant, but I think it must be an import. I think that's also important to know the native plants versus the sometimes the nice visitors and the invasive species. You should know like what you're planting in your garden. Um and my sister, she was, uh, she majored in, dual major in art and botany. So she always knew what everything was. She pointed out everything 
um, she would quiz me and her concentration was, was on, you know, the native species around here in New Jersey. Wow. So, so it's from her that I knew marsh marigolds wow. and fiddlehead ferns oh, and sphagnum moss. So yeah. would yeah. you consider your, I mean, obviously a, a botanist being someone who went to school for botany, but you mm-hmm. study these things. Right. I studied these, yeah, but I don't have the degree, so... Um, the self-taught botanist, the self-taught... Self-taught, yeah. You know? I just, you know, I see, um, you know, see a flower, and, and every year, um, Lauren Heineman, who's the editor of the Llewellyn Herbal Almanac, will send me an email, hey, do you want to write something for the Herbal Almanac this year? And I think, yeah, what do, what do I want to, what do I, and I'll think, you know, cause usually there's some kind of flower or plant that's been nagging me all year, mm-hmm. find my, you know, saying find more out more about me. And so right. then that's my then impetus to go out and find, right. find more about it. And so. you would consider, and you, what about the herbalist part of, I mean, obviously you'd work a lot mm-hmm. of, with herbs, but would you consider yourself an herbalist? No, cause I'm really lazy. Like right now, <laughs> We have two, we've got two tricolor sage, two pots of tricolor sage outside Mm because, you know, my son and I, we're going to make tea out of it. Have we made the tea yet? We have not done that yet. Um, I have, I'm looking out the window right now at my mullen. I um, borrowed a mullen plant last summer from... Uh, the Nokia Corporation, which is up the hill from me. I don't mm-hmm. think they would mind because no. <laughs> they have beautiful, the Nokia Corporation, they're Finnish. So they actually, they have, there are trails around the corporate Bell Labs park. And it'll even has, has like little fitness centers. They, they want you to wander around there. So I yeah. helped myself to a mullen um, from the woods there. And the, the spike, the flower spike is about, two and a half feet tall right now. Wow. So what I should really do when it's dry, I should dip it in several layers of wax. Yeah. And make a torch in the old Roman style. Will that happen? I'm not sure, but I can think about it. It's funny because in your, so for people that don't know, when you run a podcast like this, you often have, um, what I have is an intake form, right? So I ask the guests a, a bunch of questions so that, you know, I know who you are when, when we when we begin. And, you know, one of the things you wrote in your intake form was, I'm not a witch, so I don't have anything to contribute there. And yet right. at the same time, you literally just said, this plant has been nagging me. You you have these deep connections with plants. This flower, you know what I mean. So I go, oh, well, you you you're totally witchy. Like you're so oh, like you're so you're so in tune with the earth and 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 these plants and whatever. And they're speaking to you. And just because you're not like you know out there doing full moon ritual doesn't mean you're not. I mean. And it's definitely a compliment. Oh, so I can be witchy. All You're right. You're yeah, totally like witchy. Are you oh. kidding me? I was flipping through your recent book, the galley copy of your recent book, which we're going to talk about later because it's so freaking awesome. And I was like, she's totally a kitchen witch. <laughs> Come on. This, I was like, this woman is a total kitchen witch and I, she has no idea. Um, no, it's so great. Well, it's- that's good to hear because I, I get care, like I'm um, wary of getting outed, you know, that if yeah. I present myself as a witch and somebody's like, Oh, you know, I may say something wrong and like, oh, she's not a real witch. She's pa-. So I don't want to pass myself off as a witch. But yeah, I think I'm I think I'm witchy. I think you're witchy. witchy. I think you're totally witchy. And it's not just like, like I said, you don't have to like 
belong. That's the great thing about identifying her as a witch. You don't have to like fit into a specific box. You know, this work that you're doing mm-hmm. where you're, you know, learning and teaching about, you know, ethnobotany and, and, and the, the deep meanings and the lore behind things like that's, that's folk magic. Like, yeah. And I do have, I do have a little bit of a crush on Gerald Gardner. I mean, <laughs> I've always been a fan of Gerald Gardner. And I have a story to tell, tell. about him, if you'd tell. like to hear it. Yes. Um, so it was when I was working on my first book, Night of the Witches, and um, I was working at a library, as I have for most of my life, I've worked in libraries. And um, the woman I was working with, she became a very close friend. She asked, you know, what are you working on? And she was, at that time, she was in her 70s. She's French. And I did not think she would have any interest in a book about witches. Yeah, I didn't know her that well then. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm writing this book about Walpurgis Night. She'd heard of Walpurgis Night. And, um, you know, it's, it's about witches and stuff. And she says, I had tea with a witch once. And I say, do tell. She says, yes. Um, it was in England. It was on the Isle of Man. And I'm like, Gerald Gardner had a museum on the isle of man it wasn't gerald gardner she's like oh yeah i don't remember his name it was it was so long ago it was it was just a few years i think he he passed away a few years later like well wh- when was this it was in the 60s oh my god and i go and i get rosemary ellen guiley's encyclopedia of witches and witchcraft off off the reference shelf and i show her a picture of gerald gardner i said is this and she's like that's oh him oh my god that's him. Oh my god! And I said, "How? How did this?" And she said, "Her her husband, who was some kind of engineer, had business in England, and so she had read um, Witchcraft Today." Right. She wrote to Gerald Gardner and said she was going to be in the area, and she would love to meet him. He wrote back and invited her for tea. What? And said <laughs> it was quite a long typed letter and saying you know when you when you arrive you know on the boat um you go, go to this visitor center or something and just tell them you know you're here to see me castletown 2248 and i'll come around and get you and she had tea with gerald Gardner. she said it was it was a little cottage it was very old it was very dark his hair was very white wow and yeah and i said so did you want to be a witch and she said "Mm, i think if i had been younger she was in her 40s at the time if maybe if i'd been younger i would have but she was a traditional housewife wife of an engineer three kids um but gerald gardner really resonated with her and she's since passed away um and i now own the two letters that gerald gardner wrote to her oh my goodness yeah. Wow. That's wow. Right. Wow. That's, that's witchy <laughs> history right there. Like that's, it is, that's it is. And I treasure them. That's amazing. So, so, I mean, obviously then she was very interested in your book. <laughs> she was, yes. She, um, she did, you know, she read witches um she passed away i mentioned her in the acknowledgments to old magic of christmas but she passed away before it was published i also mentioned her in my new book she's sort of a a character in there amazing amazing wow 
Wow. So again, I'm going to say, yeah, you're totally witchy. Like there's no, you. Okay. All I right. Mean, I'm like, yeah. Witchy batch. Yeah. It's, it's yes, for sure. You can totally identify that way uh, from the work that you you're doing. Because I'm not on video, but I'm doing like a little butt wiggle now of happiness. Okay. <laughs> I don't think anybody would talk to you, Linda, and not be like, oh yeah, that, that woman knows her witchy shit. Like you, you know your witchy okay. shit right now, okay? Like, let's just... I know my witchy shit. Yeah, All right. just, just own it. Don't put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, own it. Own it, for sure. So, okay. so obviously, you're into, um, like we said, you know, plants and herbology and, and, and botany and all that. Um, but is that, again, you, you write about food, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. you love to cook. You love to be in the kitchen. So when I when I define the word um, kitchen witch, when I when I say I'm a kitchen witch. What I mean is my practice, my spiritual practice is centered in the kitchen uh, and based on um, mindfulness, visualization, and intention, specifically when it comes to food and cooking food, um, you know, sourcing food, feeding food to others, creating recipes, um, and that's for me the 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 top blanket. And then there's all other things in there. Like I go, okay, there's a little herbalism in there, and there's a little bit of um, you know kitcheny craft things where I might you know uh, make my own um, cleansing uh, herbal sticks and things like that. So what would if I said to you, this is my definition of kitchen witchcraft? Would that resonate with you? Um. My, what I do in the kitchen is more need-based. Like I was surprised, maybe not so surprised, researching my latest book, coming across a lot of the, like, early women cookbook writers, and they were writing for exactly the same reason that I write. I have a lot of interests. There's a lot of different things I want to write about, Um, but... I know cooking. We we gr- I grew up baking with my mother, mm. familiar with the kitchen. I can cook. I can bake. I can craft. And so Llewellyn pays me to write about that. <laughs> and I need money. Yes. Which was the same thing with um, Sarah Josepha Hale wrote to support her family. Hannah Glass, who was um, in in England and yeah. 1400s she her husband for whatever reason couldn't bring in any cash she was writing to support her family so I'm in that tradition of what do I know how to do I know how to bake and cook I can write a book about that right right and I mean if I was not interested I mean I'm interested in it too um like my mom just baked that was her way of, you know, and she mm-hmm. very much enjoyed it and finding recipes. And yeah. she once won a Linzer Tata contest. So, it's you know, easy. I had a good teacher. Not easy. But then I, not, not easy. Not, not but easy. she did. Um, <laughs> and I know when, I guess it was like, I was always been interested in the history of food because in home economics class, which I'm so old that in middle school, all the girls had to take home economics and all the boys had to take shop. Mm-hmm. And then for like two weeks, we got to switch. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of home economics and I was not very good at it. I was not very good at the sewing. I could embroider, but as far as like using the sewing machine, wasn't good with that. Um, 
wasn't great at the baking projects that she gave us. But then once a week, she would do a trivia, food trivia. And I just nailed it. I just blew everybody away. And somebody, I remember somebody looking at me, another, you know, their kid looking at me, he's like, do you just go home and like read the encyclopedia? (laughs) And of course, no, but the truth was, yeah. And for our younger listeners, an encyclopedia was a series of books that had all the information. It was like the internet, but a hard copy. (laughs) And you would look it up, right? I don't know if like- And you would have your, with the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'd have your- micropedia and your macropedia and you had to know you look up the thing in the micropedia first yep and that will refer you to the relevant articles in the macropedia yes and that's library science kids um (laughs) people don't i don't think people know um so so really in terms of food you grew up around cooking and baking and so this is something like myself right like food was my religion Right. Like I grew up in an Italian New York family and mm-hmm. food is everything. Right. So, so you're always cooking, you're always baking, you're always learning from your mom, your grandma, even your uncles, you know, whoever is in that Italian family, like that's, that's food is everything. So you were surrounded by that as well your whole life. Yeah. I was, yeah. My mom worked. So there was not, you know, there was not like always a pot of something bubbling on the stove. We mm-hmm. had a lot of Le Menu frozen dinners. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of Chef Boyardee. Mm-hmm. Um, but Christmas time mm-hmm. was when she baked and she baked from scratch. Mm-hmm. And even, even though there wasn't that pot of spaghetti sauce boiling on the stove, like nobody would ever cross our threshold without being asked, offered something to eat yes. and drink. Yes. And so I stick with that. And I get a little offended when people, like, if you're coming to stay for any length of time, you're just going to sit there while I drink tea and eat the cookies. Right. You, you better know? eat something. Like, like come on. Have something. Yes. Make I, a show of it. Yeah. I'm <sighs> providing you sacred hospitality, damn it. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a sacred, you know, covenant when you come into my house. Yes. Yes. And you connect, you, you, you break bread, you have a cup of tea. And, you know, that's something for me in my practice that is essential is the connectivity of human interaction over food and through food, right? Like how do we connect with others? When you think about your experiences of life and you think about birthday parties or holidays or first dates or weddings, there's food at the center of all of those things. You it know? really is. Yeah. Right? And like, are you going to cook for your boyfriend? Are you going to let your boyfriend cook for you? Are you going to encourage your boyfriend to cook for you? Your partner, like which partner is going to do the most cooking? Right. And also cooking like kind of the first date where you cook together with a new partner. Yes. Right. Like, that's And that's something. a big deal. Like when uh, my husband and I were dating, like that's how my parents knew that I was serious about him because I was like, I'm inviting him over and I'm cooking dinner. I'm cooking a lasagna. I'm cook-. It was a, you know, it's a big deal because you've been together for mm-hmm. a couple months and now I want to actually feed you love. You know, like that's, yes. that's what we're doing, you know? Um, would you say that you gravitate more to, like, are you more of a cook or are you more of a baker? I, I'm happiest when it's like 20 minutes. Well, my son and I don't really have 
plan, not so much, just kind of planned eating times, but it's usually when I get hungry enough to think, oh, I could make this. Mm. I could, but this, I have this, I have an avocado and I have English muffins and I could make, you know, I could put this together with that together. That's when I'm happiest. So that's cooking. Um, he's more of a planned cook. Uh, he loves Korean food. Mm. So he makes Korean food. Um, so he's 18 now. So he does a lot of the cooking, but he's more planned. I'm more seat of the pants. What's in the refrigerator yeah. and what's something really cool we can do with it. Yeah. Baking. I need, usually I need a reason to bake. I need, we're going to go somewhere and we need to bring a cake and then, because that's more methodical. Yeah. You can be creative. People say it, it, it is chemistry, but there's a lot of leeway for creativity there. So Yeah. I, I think that's true. And and like if I had to say, I'm definitely more of a cook than a baker. Um, and I like, have like unlike, I, I do like throwing just together, things just together. But I do love to plan. I'll be like, ooh, I had this idea, like the creative process because food is so creative. And um, you know, especially right now, like I'm I'm I've got a CSA from a local farm and I don't know what I'm gonna get. So I can't plan too far in advance. I have to be inspired by what Mother Earth is giving me today, this moment. Like what is in season, what is super fresh, and now I have this tapestry of the freshest produce sitting in front of me. And now I have to be inspired. What inspires you, Linda, to cook something or to bake something or to come up with a new recipe? Well, I think, okay, so that like having a subscription, I think is, would be too much pressure for me. <laughs> my, my aunt in Germany, she has that, it's called die Kiste, that the chest, the chest is coming. And um, she doesn't know what's going to be in it, what vegetables are going to be in it. And like, yeah, one time I, my son and I were there, my daughter, she was older, she, she wasn't there. And I remember emailing her, uh, there's half a lamb, half a lamb just arrives. And she oh, emails half back, a lamb. which, which half? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So love that's, it. yeah, that's a little bit, and my aunt's fine with it. She's like, oh, she has a recipe for everything. Um, what inspires me? So I get, so initially with the Christmas recipes was, was my mom's tradition of inspire of, of baking. And for a lot of her recipes, like she makes Lebkuchen, which is, um, usually translated as gingerbread. I get into that in the book. Um, and I thought that this was an old family recipe and I found out only like a couple years ago she got the recipe from a neighbor who was from California. Oh my God. Yeah. We don't know where the neighbor got the recipe. So that because, and like, and, and also like her Linza taught a recipe, her, she started out with something. I think she found it in good housekeeping. Yeah. And then she tailored it to how she wanted it to be because re- my, um, so her mother also worked because her my mother's father died when she was seven so oh. her mom had to work and um it was my mother was born in 1937 so war so not much food yeah and you just um they would just make what they could with what they had like yeah. my grandmother one my mom should see she made easter eggs out of instant potatoes Wow. Just so there would be an egg-shaped thing. I think she used some food coloring. There added a little sugar. There's an egg-shaped thing on the table at 
on Easter morning. The Easter Bunny has indeed been here. <laughs> and wow. so there was a lot of Im- wow. improvisation. And my mom still, I joke that like if she's short of an ingredient, if she's missing an ingredient for a recipe, she just adds oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> Because her, it's just like, it's what you have. You know, we're not going to yeah. make a special trip to yeah. the store for that. We have oatmeal. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, generationally, and again, like, I think we said it before um, we started recording that, like, if you want to know a people or you want to understand a people, understanding what they eat, how they eat, and, and even their experience in life. I mean, my, your, it sounds like your family is primarily from, um, you said, Germany. My family, mm-hmm. my family is Italian, but my grandmother came here in the 20s. She was a young girl, you know, and then they lived through the depression in New York. And it was very much like, well, what are we going to eat? You know, like those, they had to figure it out. And so they mm-hmm. had, you know, that gardening background and they were able to kind of grow some stuff. And, you know, I can remember even being at my grandmother's as a little kid and my grandmother n- n- not wasting anything. And she would go out into the backyard and pick dandelion and we would have dandelion omelet. She would just scramble up an egg with whatever yeah, edible we, weeds kid, were in we- the backyard. Yeah, we would eat dandelions. My sister and I, like, just for fun, when we heard the dandelions were edible, yeah. we're like, we're going to eat dandelion leaves. We're going to make a dandelion leaf salad. Mm-hmm. So and the good snow. Do kids, do, do kids still do the snow thing? We used to do, like, you scoop up snow and you bring it inside and you put maple syrup on it. That was a thing when I was a kid. You know, I, I never did that, but I could totally imagine that, especially here in New Hampshire, where, like, maple syrup is a, is a thing. I imagine that. That especially yeah. up north, people did. I never did that. But it sounds delicious. I'm going to do it now. This winter, mm-hmm. I'm I'm yeah, going to do that. I'm going to do that now. It's amazing. I, I, we'll get enough snow. I don't know if we'll get enough snow down in New Jersey. We didn't. We got hardly any last year. We will totally do it this year. I'm not looking good for it. But it, but it is amazing how those family traditions. Again, they that and to me that's ancestral magic. Going back to that idea of like, hey, you're kind of kitchen witchy. This is ancestral magic. We are keeping our our family stories alive and our heritages alive through the foods that have been passed down and passed down and passed down. You know, when my grandmother passed away, my mother came to me and said, you know, what do you want from grandma's house? And I said, anything from the kitchen. And what I got mm-hmm. was like, um, just a couple of things. I got, um, two muffin tins that are like hammered mm-hmm. copper that, oh ca- yeah, that they're eight muffins nice. each. Um, and they're, they came from, they came over with my grandmother that they were my great grandmother. So they came with her from Italy in the twenties. They were my great grandmother's passed on to my grandmother, passed down to me. <sighs> right? Oh good. They're that's um, per- yeah, that's wonderful. Do you use them? I you only still use, them? use them when I need to make magic. So I have like a regular, normal, you know, non-stick uh, muffin tin. And if I'm gonna just make muffins, I'll use that. But if I'm like, okay, I'm celebrating a holiday or I need to make a specific recipe where I need to kind of like ask for my grandmother's guidance and I want her here with me, then I pull out those pans. Right. Same thing with her banana mm-hmm. bread. I have a banana bread loaf pan of hers as well. That's just like aluminum. And it's just like, again, it's it's like 100 years old. She was 97 when she died. These things are like 100 years <gasps> old. They yeah. have her energy in them. Do you have any pieces like that from, from your grandmother? Oh, yes. I have her dish towel, <gasps> which they're, they're white linen and wow. they have a very subtle pattern like checkerboard pattern woven into them and they have the initials F 
T embroidered on them, which was Francisca Trapp. So Trapp was her maiden name. So this was wow. in her trousseau. Towels are in her trousseau. Wow. And, um, you know, I keep them. I don't use them as dish towels. I will, like, if I make muffins or something to keep something hot, mm -hmm. I'll put the towel over it. And mm -hmm. I also have her aunt's teacup and cake plate set. Oh. It's not complete. A lot have broken. They're very, very thin china. And when I usually, when I post something that I baked on Instagram, it's on one of Tantamina's plates. Wow. And the story of them is that her, so Tantamina, so that was my grandmother's aunt, her, her husband, I believe it was her, her husband was a builder and they built a house for the mayor of Lübeck in Germany. And then when they got married, the mayor gave them this imported Japanese tea set Wow. As a wedding present. Wow. Yeah, so they're over 100 years old. And I only use it only for very, very special guests do I serve food on them because they are so thin. And But it, yeah. was, it was hard getting them here because, uh, you know, we had to pack them in a suitcase, pack them really carefully to get them over here. So we have very little of that. Um, my, my cousins in Germany, they've, they have furniture. They have more photo albums. Um, so I think for me, the recipes are a way of that's like my inheritance. The, the recipes are my heirlooms, Yeah. even if they turned out to be actually from California or good housekeeping. Um, it's yeah. still because my mother, you know, she also she came here when she was 17. Wow. So at Christmas time, I think was when she felt most homesick. Yeah. And so she wanted to make what she had eaten, at least mm -hmm. in Germany, even if her mother, her mother only ever made Braunekuchen, which is brown cookies to hang on the Christmas tree. So, but she'd eaten, you know, at the Christmas fairs, there's, there's things to eat. So she wanted to create that here. So the recipes are the heirlooms. Yeah. Yeah. It's how we stay connected with them. And then we are able mm -hmm. to take that, that the magic of ancestral connection and pass that down to those in our family or share them with our chosen family, right? Like that's a mm -hmm. huge effing deal, right? Like, I, the, okay, so I'm gonna tell you the story about um, grandma bread. We call it grandma bread, right? Now, my, okay, there's, I, I, it's really a, a spinach and cheese stuffed stromboli, right? And it's, it's the most delicious Thing in the world. And it's terrible because I cannot eat gluten and I cannot eat cheese. So, but I remember, oh. I remember this and I still make it. So if we're having people come over, I will still make this. But it was the thing that my grandmother would make and bring to every occasion, whether it was a holiday, whether it was a birthday, it didn't matter. Grandma would show up with these two little flat loaves of grandma bread and have to reheat them in the oven and they would get sliced thin and we would put them on the table and they were those things that you would, you would sneak, you know? Um, and, and to this day, no one in the family could figure out the recipe. And then oh, some, she never wrote it down. She never wrote it down. And then somehow or another, I was going through all these old recipes from my grandmother and I found this little thing written in pencil 
that was stuffed in a, a, a recipe book that my mom gave me. And there it was. Mm-hmm. And it just said like stuffed bread. And it's like four ingredients. And I and and I have it and I've been making it. Um, can't eat it, but it's mm-hmm. amazing. And I will never, like I like you, I write cookbooks and I teach cooking classes. I will never share that recipe. It's too sacred, but I will cook it for people and I will let them. And you'll pass it down to someone, right? Correct. Correct. But it's yes. not something I would print in a book, you know? Like it's too, mm-hmm. it's, no, it's too, too special. It's too special. Uh, but speaking of books, we really want to talk about your new book, especially because this episode is going to air at the holidays. So when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our amazing sponsors. And when we come back, we are going to talk about your new amazing book, which is called The Secret History of Christmas Baking. So exciting. We'll be right back. Hey guys, I've just got to tell you all about the Robin's Nests. They're one of my absolute favorite shops uh, for everything for my metaphysical and spiritual needs. They've got gifts and crafts and potions and ritual items and books and books and books. Uh, Of course, candles and crystals and ritual wear. So, so many things to help you on your spiritual practice. Um, But what really makes the Robin's Nest special is the owner, Robbie Packard. She does so much to bring community and friendship and openness, welcoming people into her space at the Robin's Nest, but also into this spiritual space of anything, pagan, witchcraft, spiritual. Uh, You've just, if you're local to Massachusetts, you've got to go check her out. She's down in Bellingham, Massachusetts. Um, And if you're not local, please check them out online uh, at therobinsnestma.com. She's able to ship all over. She's able to get you what you need. She's available for questions. And of course, they have tons of online uh, workshops and classes and rituals. So really a way for you to connect with a spiritual community uh, right now from your home. Check them out, therobinsnestma.com and send Robbie a little bit of love from me because when you when you meet her, when you go to her shop, you are going to be transported into a world of loving magic and community growth. Join renowned artist Jenny Razor for a one-of-a-kind art journaling class. Kick off the new year by retelling stories of strong-willed women of mythology through art and interpretation. Better know your own strength and will while working with the likes of Pandora and Medusa through your own artistic nature. Jenny will take you on a 10-week journey with live video classes. No previous art journaling experience is necessary. Get more info at JennyDavisRazor.com. That's J-D-A-V-I-E-S-R-E-A-Z-O-R. Sign up for this class starting early January 2024 and receive a free gift from Jenny upon registration. At Cucina Aurora Kitchen Witchery, we are constantly bringing people together around great food. 
We help you make your own mealtime magic at home with our line of delicious infused olive oils, authentic risottos, seasoning mixes for dips, and even our brand new line of coffee for moon magic and seasonal brews. Keep an eye out this spring for our fabulous new line of magical marinara in roasted garlic pomodoro and coming soon, sweet basil pomodoro. Not to mention cookbooks, cutting boards, and wooden spoons for all your kitchen witchy needs. Visit us at cucinaaurora.com, on Instagram at cucinaaurora, and on Facebook at cucinaaurora slash food. We are back on Conversational Witchcraft with Linda Radish. This is so much fun. Okay, your most recent book is The Secret History of Christmas Baking with the subtext of, wait for it, stories of uh, stories from tomb offerings to gingerbread boys, the dark side of the holiday kitchen. Can I tell you how freaking cool this book is? I can't. I can't. It's so exciting. I actually wanted to call it from tomb robbers to gingerbread boys, but um, that was voted down. It, w- it had a lot of different working titles. I think the first one was Harpies, Tarts, and Stars. That's a good one. And then at one, change, at one point I changed it to um, Mummies, Tarts, and Zombies. It went, it went through a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of different working titles. <laughs> so, so, so cool. Okay, so obviously we've been talking about food, we've been talking about cooking, and we're going to get into that a little bit, but I want to get into the historical lore, right? So you said before that you've worked in libraries for a really, you know, whole life, you've worked in libraries. Obviously mm-hmm. you love history, you love fact, you love the research part of that, right? Um is there, do you have a specifically a favorite period in history? Um, I don't. For a long time, I loved, loved the Middle Ages. Uh, for a long time, I loved the Viking period. Mm-hmm. And I still love those. But I think, um, I think there's not enough made of what I like to call spectral history. Mm-hmm. Like looking through a period of history through one specific spectrum. Because outside the Middle Ages and the Viking period, most of what I know from history is reading, um, quote-unquote, real-life ghost stories. When my daughter was was a kid, she, she loved that. So we would read together, um, like, every like real-life ghost story book we could find. Every time we went to New Mexico, she was born in New Mexico, we would buy New Mexico ghost stories. Santa Fe ghost stories, Albuquerque ghost stories. So it's wow. it's people, you know, relating this happened. Oh, maybe because it was what this happened here in 1800 and, and just reading all over the world. So most of my history comes through ghost stories and also through cooking. So, and I think that's, yeah, like when they teach history in school, I wish they would like ask, give like assignments. Like, okay, what's something that in- is interesting to you? Like maybe it's like somebody just cares about lacrosse. Well, write a paper on the history of lacrosse and where it came from right. and how it got to be a suburban sport when it like started out as a sacred game. Mm-hmm. Something like that instead of just like if you say history, it seems boring. But yeah. if it's like culinary history, yes, sports yes. history. 
that's when it gets interesting. Yes. Right. So this book is really, really cool because you take the history and mash it up with the food. Uh, and, and for me specifically, when this book came across my purview, um, I can boil everything back to my first experiences of kitchen witchcraft being baking Christmas cookies when I was very little with my mom and my grandma. So, um, and specifically memories with my grandmother where she's baking the cookies and I'm decorating the cookies. What and kind of cookies did she bake? So she baked everything and then passed that down to my mother. My mother baked all kinds of cookies. Like my mom would bake like I don't know, 15 to 25 different varieties of cookies every year. But the memory is of sugar cookie cutouts, very simple, Mm -hmm. plain vanilla sugar cookie cutouts in all different shapes, right? You had a star, you had an angel, you had a, um, a, 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 um, what's the word, a reindeer. Um, And I would be the one decorating them. But what stands out is the ritual of the cooking, Mm -hmm. right? We use this particular bowl. We buy these specific ingredients. We use this, these specific cookie cutters. We don't go buy a new one. No, it's these, which I still have, by the way, I have these Mm -hmm. cookie cutters. So the ritual is what really stood out to me. And you would wait all year for the ritual of these particular cookies, right? So can, can you talk to us a little bit about an example of maybe one of those ritual type cooking or ritual type bakes that you would do with your family? Well, I have, um, it's not the original stone bowl. I don't know what happened to the original stone bowl, the bowl that my mother would mix the stone in. Um, but at one point we got a new one and it's the same kind, you know, that it's a cream colored bowl with a blue stripe around the middle. Yes. I know exactly so right what you're now, talking about. We have a small kitchen. It's on top of the refrigerator and it has like some baking things inside it. That's all it will be used for until early December when it will be brought down and we will mix the stone dough dough Mm -hmm. in Mm it. And the cookie cutters too. Yeah, there are, yeah, people, usually I don't buy cookie cutters. People give us cookie cutters. We have, I have the original bedrock collection of cookie cutters that that we baked with my mom and then people like my my family in Germany, they'll send some, like they'll send a bunny at Easter time because mm-hmm. they know I like to bake. I have a seal, um, <laughs> you know, a harbor seal cookie yeah. cutter. Yeah. I have Texas. Yeah, somebody in college who was from Texas, he gave me a Texas cookie cutter. That's awesome. Um, but we only use that if we make bizcochitos, which we, we picked up some recipes because I lived in New Mexico for a few years. Right. And um, we go back there. My daughter just moved back there. Um, so we picked up some New Mexico recipes. Wow. And so, yeah, but you can't, um, like, I'm kind of in a quandary now because it's not Christmas time yet. And I have to write um, an article for Llewellyn that's going to be released at Christmas time and put another Christmas recipe in there. So I'm like, I have to make it, I, I can't do one of our traditional Christmas cookies because I'm not supposed to be baking that now. It would right. be wrong to be eating it and smelling it at this time of year. Yes, because we're recording this in the summertime. Summer. Mm-hmm. And you can't be, like, you You can't have, you know, the cinnamon and vanilla, you know, baking things in the house in July. It just doesn't feel right. It would not be right. Yeah. So yes. I can do, I think I'll do an American, maybe an American gingerbread because that 
we never made them like the soft. We never yeah. made that at home. Yeah. So that doesn't have that association. Yeah. Yeah. For me. And it, and, it, and gingerbread wasn't actually, originally it was not just for Christmas. It was for special occasions. Mm-hmm. Christmas was just one of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that you really get into in the history, the secret history of Christmas baking. You get into the lore, the folklore, the history of where do these things come from, you know, throughout history. Um, one of the things that I thought was uh, really something that fascinated me in the book was your story of the Hakate cakes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm wondering if, if you'd be willing to share with our listeners a little bit of that story um, and what made makes those cakes so special um, so that people can really understand the example of, of what's in this book because it's so fascinating. Okay, let's see. Well, the I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I was calling them Hecate cakes, um, which are not like, it's not a real thing. It was just kind of like I extrapolated some things for fun and that was um, trying to trying to trace my thoughts. Like it's been a while since I wrote it. Yeah, you so get, it was you so, get into like who was this person and Catherine, and then uh, you know what she was known as, and was, the whole lore around it, and then why they started baking these cakes, and it was just so fascinating. It was, it was there was a lot of roads. I my research led me down that I totally did not expect to get let yes. down um so i knew that there were i knew there were all kinds of lebkuchen and then there's pfefferkuchen which is a kind of lebkuchen and they're all translated as gingerbread yeah so i was um just kind of looking around um and my mother gets a catalog from germany and it has all different kinds of of lebkuchen like like the inuit have you know multiple words for snow the germans have multiple words for lebkuchen and i, cro- I came across one um katrinchen tana katrinchen which is translates as uh, little catherines from the town of torun which is now in poland and so i traced this and they were called little catherines because they baked them for St. Catherine's Day in November, back in the Middle Ages. And I thought, well, which St. Catherine? I found St. Catherine of Alexandria. So I found like her story. And she's a saint that was like so long ago. And the things that are said about her are so incredible that she probably never existed as a person. (laughs) And then I found that her name may derive from Hecate, who was the Greek goddess of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And this was during the Greek period in Egypt. And like, how cool is that? And, um, and uh, Copernicus, the astronomer, he was from the town of Torn. And I more recently found, and I, so I said, you could make them moon-shaped. You could make, instead of the traditional Katrintian form, you could make yours moon-shaped. And I recently read something that um, Copernicus' mother may have been a witch. Oh, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. Because maybe say, hey, look at the stars. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's just really, really cool. And through throughout this book, you have these stories and this history and this lore. And It's just, it makes you think. And that to me is one of the best things about um, specifically me as a kitchen witch, but I think witchcraft in general. And I know, I know you don't particularly identify as a witch, but these ideas of connectivity, these ideas of history and lore, and why were these cakes made in the first place? And then maybe I'm taking that intention and putting that into my cooking as well. So anything that kind of like 
gets you to think about what you're doing a little differently. Whether it is food, whether you're cooking or you're baking or, or you're working in your garden or whatever it is, anything that gets you to think about it differently and learn where these traditions come from kind of um, inform us in our practices. And that's what I find so fascinating about your book specifically, because we all do have our own holiday traditions. Um, and most witches I know effing love Christmas. Like I, (laughs) I love Christmas. Like I can't wait. I, I cannot wait. I literally thought for this interview, even though we're doing it in the summer, I literally thought about putting on a red sweater and like putting up a green screen with like Christmassy stuff because I was like, Ooh, Christmas, we could do a Christmas thing. And I was like, reel it in, you know, reel it in. But we, we love it. We, I love the season of Yule. Like I just can't wait for it. And part of that is these traditions, right? Well, part of my fear in writing it was that, and I'm finding like I've, you're not supposed to write, authors are not supposed to read the reviews, but I have been reading reviews on Goodreads. And um, there was one in particular that I was like, oh, she read the book I wrote. Mm. But a lot of people are reading a different book, which is okay. That happens. You put the book into the world. You have no control. Um, but I thought people are going to read this book and they're never going to want to bake or eat another Christmas cookie again, which is not my intention, but I want them to think about sugar Mm -hmm. and vanilla and cinnamon and colonialism and genocide and Mm neocolonialism when they are using the ingredients. Mm -hmm. I think we need to know this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like sugar. This is the worst thing that ever happened in the world. I mean, that's not untrue. That's that leads you into my next question, which is, you know, I'm sure people talk to you a lot and ask you questions about folklore and cooking. But what should the conversation be? You know, if if I if if you had your choice, like what should we be asking you that isn't, oh, how do you make these German gingerbread? It's like, yeah, because like the the book, um, the cover is fun. I love the cover. The book is fun, but also the his, the history behind it, it's not just footnotes. It's like you look at Jamaica. Why is Jamaica so poor? Hmm. Because they, they brought the sugar workers, enslaved people who knew how already to make and process, grow and process sugar cane. And then the slaves rebelled. Mm-hmm. Finally, I think I've took like 10 years of bloody revolution. And then, but then the price for participating in economy um, as a separate nation, the French imposed on them such big fines that that's why Jamaica is poor today. So Jamaica is dirt poor today because we love sugar, basically. Yeah. So right. it's still, it's not over. The nightmare right. is not over. Right, right. And that is really important when we're talking about the history of our traditions, right? Like where yeah. where are these ingredients coming from? How did things that are not indigenous to certain parts of the world, right? How sugarcane doesn't grow in, you know, cold parts of the world. How did mm-hmm. Northern Europeans get sugar? Like let's 
discuss that, right? So yeah, so yeah. Let's talk. Let's, let's confront this. Let's <laughs> confront that a little bit because it it it's yeah, holly jolly, merry yada yada. But the reality is this. So how do you combat like? How do you combat that? Because you are still baking. You are still using sugar. I'm still baking. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you in your practice or for those of us who want to be more um, mindful of those things, what is you, what do you suggest? Yeah. It's talking about it. Um, telling people about what the history that you know and appreciating like sugar is, there's nothing wrong with sugar. Sugar is a grass mm-hmm. and it, people were able to get along with it for a long time. They built with certain species of sugar cane. Um, and then, then people, it was in the Arab world, they started refining it, but that it was really a cottage industry because it was arid. Um, and it seems to be, you know, I'm white. I love white people. I'm happy to be white, but we seem to have like, trouble with just taking things too far so we see the europeans get there we can make more and more and more and then we get more spices and and just kind of i don't know maybe because northern europe was so like we didn't have much for so long yeah and then when we started to move out into oh they've got this and this and this let's take that and that let's let's take as much as we can yeah and i think i think yeah so um like moderation Let's all be a little bit more moderate in everything. Let's not all try to get as much of everything that we can Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. have less stuff and appreciate it more. So sugar, like I love sugar. I can't live without sugar. And, you know, we no longer have those sugar, you know, like it it was, um, it was just, I mean, yeah, acknowledge, it should be acknowledged like how mm-hmm. it messed the entire mm-hmm. world up. The whole, the the triangle where, you know, sugar for the molasses, for the rum and mm-hmm. yeah. And that's not just with sugar, you know, that's not just with sugar. I mean, we have that even now there are, there's a lot of um, problems with uh, labor uh, issues and, um, mm-hmm. you know, chocolate and coffee and, you know. Uh, and, and um digital stuff like i'm fond of telling saying to people um oh so you got a new cell phone mm. even though your old one was only two years old mm-hmm. so you had no problem telling those kids in africa to go diving into that smoking toxic dump to get the elements for your new cell phone right and i think you know it's when you start thinking about all of those things it is incredibly overwhelming to anyone that has any that's an ounce of empathy right um i think especially being in food you know i'm in the food business you know food is my spiritual path the most important thing for me and tell me if you feel the same way is that like you said, you touched on it. You said appreciation. I think the gratitude and understanding um, of, you know, there are parts of the world where this comes from, and I need to be grateful for those people, and I need to be conscious of how I spend my money. Right? I mm-hmm. even if it's just little old me, 
I am very specific in what kind of coffee I buy. I'm always making sure that that coffee is, you know, fair trade certified. And, you know, same thing with like, you know, I'm a meat eater. I like eating meat. You know, I'm making sure that I'm buying locally raised, you know, grass fed as, and I realize that is my privilege to do that. And I'm very, not everybody can. And, but when you can do, and when you can't, talk about it, think about it, find right. gratitude, right? Like we are very lucky that we have sugar and chocolate and coffee and all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to be able to understand where it comes from and its history so that we can fully appreciate it. Would you agree? I would agree. I think um, to, to take care of your corner, like you're taking care of your corner, your corner is food mm-hmm. and you're doing it responsibly and you're talking about it. And there's other things that like, you know, like you might know are going on, but like, what are you going to do about it? Take care Mm -hmm. of your own corner. And that will definitely have an impact. Because remember, I remember um, when I was in college in the late 80s in Santa Fe, there was a store called Wild Oats. Mm. And you could buy organic produce in Wild Oats. Everything was organic. And you would, I went in there a couple of times and like they were all hippies. They were all neo-hippies. Normal people did not go to Wild Oats. Normal people did not go to Whole Foods. And now normal people do. Normal people. There's an organic section of produce in your grocery store, which 20 years ago, that wasn't a thing. Absolutely. That you were just a freak. It was only freaks who bought organic produce. Now everybody, yeah, if you can afford it, like you said, not everybody can afford it. I can't always afford the organic stuff, but if you can buy it and talk about it Mm -hmm. and say that it's better. So like everybody have a corner, find your corner, Mm -hmm. be, be conscientious about it, be outspoken about it. Mm -hmm. And that will then, you know, will lead to bigger things. Yeah. Yeah. Eating as locally um, and, and small as possible. Right. Just that if you, and again, it's a privilege that I live in an area where there's local farms, right? I can buy local eggs and I usually, I always buy local eggs. I mean, there's no reason for me to buy eggs anywhere else. So when a few months ago, when there was that big egg shortage and eggs were, you know, $7 a dozen, the local Mm -hmm. farm up the road was still selling a dozen eggs for four bucks a dozen, like they have for the last five years because- they still and have they taste their, better, right? And they taste better, and they they still they have their better. chickens, and you know there wasn't, but but the, and there are parts of the world like you know where I used to live in New York, you didn't have the luxury of going to a local farm. It was you know the supermarket or nothing. Those were your choices. So if you can do, and if you can't, find a way to talk about it. Find a way to be conscious of it. It's just such an important conversation, and I love that this book, although under the guise of Christmas and folklore and and all that you do touch on these really important topics. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's a brilliant freaking book, Linda. It's it's <laughs> thank you. It is. It really really is and I was so jazzed about it. Um and I am so jazzed about it. Um so like we have to wrap up because we're almost out of time, which is crazy. This went so fast. Um tell us like where people can find you online, how do we follow you, and where do we get this amazing book? Um, so you can get the amazing book uh, 
I think you can pre-order it from Llewellyn. You can pre-order it from Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think my books are much in stores, but pretty much anywhere online that sells books. I think there are probably like some more new agey places that sell my books. Um, and it can be ordered, right? So if you have your favorite local bookstore, just go on in there and tell yeah, them you're looking for The Secret History of Christmas Baking by Linda And Radish. you could also... You could go to your library and ask ah. your library to buy the book and add it to the collection. Yes, libraries, people. Mm, libraries. libraries. <laughs> uh, Linda, you are just delightful. And I've got to ask you my my last question, which is something I ask everyone. And I don't know, like, because you do cook and you are, you know, you are, I'm going to just dub you a kitchen witch. You are a kitchen witch. Okay. Um, I'll I, take that's it. Just, just take it. Um But I asked this question to everyone at the end of the show, and I'm interested to see what you'd say, because I actually want to answer it on the other end. So um, if you could have me as a kitchen witch cook you one magical meal, what would it be and why? I think I want to try your grandmother's bread, (laughs) your grandma bread. (laughs) My grandma bread. Because I do like stromboli. It's it's just so you could eat the whole loaf. I would a hundred percent make that for you. And what kind of cheese is in it? it, it, Well, that depends. I usually, can you say, I could say it's usually mozzarella and a little bit of pecorino romano. Um, but I've tried it with, um, provolone. I've tried it with a mixture of provolone and mozzarella. So, you know, I like how you say, I like how you say mozzarella because my mother, my mother, who's totally German, when she came here, uh, she got a job in an office, and most of the women were Italian American, yep. and I think Southern Italian American. And so she says mozzarella, manigotte, prosciutto. And one time she, um, she, we make roulade for Christmas dinner, and she made, she sent me to the store to buy brujol. Brujol. And I'm looking yeah. like, what's Brujol? What's Brujol? Oh, Braschiola? Is that what she means? So she speaks with, she says Italian food with an Italian accent, even though we are not Italian. Right, but you, you're you in New Jersey, right? Yes. Right, and so did you... So that's the dominant... Correct, yes. correct. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, my, my grandparents on both sides of my family were, you know, uh, Brooklyn and Queens. They immigrated to Brooklyn and Queens. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, my my mother is first generation and my father is second generation. So, um, you know, fa- that's, that's New York Italian, like Brajol, Menacote. Uh, it's not Capicola as Gabagol. Like that's, G- yes. Mm-hmm. Is, right. You know, Gabagol. Gabagol. <laughs> and I, I t- I'll tell you one quick story and then, uh, and then we'll let you go. But, um, my assistant is from New Hampshire, born and raised in New Hampshire. Her family is um, French Canadian. And we, I took her for the very first time many years ago. Uh, we were doing an event in New York. We were doing New York City Pagan Pride Day. And she was coming to assist because I was setting up a booth and, and um, also I was running a class. So I definitely needed help. And I brought her to her very first Italian deli. And uh, she's like, oh, my God, look at all the manicotti. And I was like, Gina, everybody's <laughs> going to know you're a tourist. It's manicotti, manicotti, manicotti. And then, you know, Manicot. she makes fun of me because I don't know how to say New Hampshire words. Like, I'll be like, um, there's a towns up here. The way they say the towns, it's, it's very mm-hmm. different. You know, it's like spelled Peabody, but they pronounce it Peabody. 
you know, so. Yeah, like we have a Bernard's Township and you know somebody's not from around here if they say Bernard's, Bernard's Township. Yes, exactly. <laughs> same, same. Bernard's. Uh, Linda, you have just been so delightful. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, just, I hope everyone just goes and gets this book and, you know, just pick one recipe and bake it. And and it's just brilliant. You know, um, everything. Yeah, you can just read it. Not everybody's a baker. It's okay if yeah. you don't bake. Don't cry. Don't no. like, I'd rather you just don't make the recipes than if you try them and cry. Yes. And if you try them and cry, it's okay because I've cried over some of them yes. too. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we all have cried over a recipe at some point. Um, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, go check out uh, this book, The Secret History of Christmas Baking by Linda Radish. Uh, just fantastic. Thank you so, so much. And until next time, everyone, I wish you so many blessings and much gratitude. <laughs>